Um, there's really no, there are no two houses that are really alike. Um, they, some have extensions, some don't. Some, you know, have stoops, some don't. Um, and I think that with, with COVID, um, there's been a new renewed demand uh, with townhouses. And uh, I want to talk about it. And I want because it's a very, very specific market. And I was very excited to invite Terry and David because they are quintessential townhouse brokers who've experienced have a tremendous amount of experience in this space. And you know, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Terry, who's here. Terry, how are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Very good. Terry actually lives in Brooklyn, has sold a tremendous amount of townhouses in Brooklyn, where Brooklyn, the Townhouses are a much larger portion of the housing stock, right? Yes, I wouldn't say they're a larger portion compared to Manhattan. Yes, and um, you know that there's there are neighborhoods um, that are considered brownstone Brooklyn, and they're very very desirable, um, and they've been very stable throughout the years. Very very stable, and the increase in the appreciation has been very stable, regardless of what's happening in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, uh, the townhouse market has been very, very consistent. Just joining us right now, for mobile is David Kornmeyer. David, how are you? Good, how are you? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, very good. David's been very gracious. He's between appointments running all over the place. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, sure, I'm a New York City taxi cab, so, you know. <laughs> Representing. So you haven't missed anything yet. We're just getting started. And our first question is really, what's a townhouse? I already got emails from people saying, what's the difference between a townhouse and a brownstone and some of the other words that we use for these, I guess, little buildings? Uh, I guess little is a relative term. And, you know, New York City, little, a uh, little apartment is probably 300 or 250 square feet. Um, so, you know, a townhouse, uh, relatively speaking, in my opinion, has always presented great value um, in the sense that it's a lot of square footage for the money, again, compared to the 300 square foot studio you get for $500,000. Um, so I guess, and Terry, again, Always awesome to see you. Feel free to disagree with anything I say in case I screw it up. But basically, you know, a lot of people use townhouse, uh, brownstone, kind of interchangeably. They're relatively similar and there's different styles of architecture. I'd say, you know, some houses have a limestone facade, which um, is generally in certain locations considered more appealing. And then some houses are actually made out of a particular type of stone, which is brown stone, which is big sort of brown pieces of stone. Some are brick, um, but townhouse, row house, townhome are, are all basically sort of a, it's more semantics than anything else, in my opinion. I have to agree with you, David. Um, a townhouse, a brownstone is a townhouse. It's just uh, people love the look of the brownstone. And so they like to say, I have a brownstone. I want to buy a brownstone. Um, it's all about the brownstone. Meanwhile, they're townhouses. So I, I'm sitting actually in Mary Vetri's um, townhouse listing in Gramercy, uh, 216 East 18th Street. It is uh, 
part brownstone and part brick. It's a Greek revival townhouse, very wide, very gracious. And um, when people ask for a brownstone, this is not a full brownstone, it's mostly brick, but it's a townhouse. They're all townhouses. Um, this, looks the only like, this looks like brick with, with brownstone on the bottom. Is that what it is? That brick? That's correct. That's correct. And that's what a Greek revival house is townhouses. It is a townhouse. Okay. Um, the only townhouse uh, that David didn't mention is probably a clapboard townhouse. Um, mm, you got me there. Very he's, rare. Very rare. Yeah, very rare. And also, it's because David sells like $20 million, $40 million. You know, those are his townhouses. <laughs> so he probably doesn't have this. The clapboard. There's one, there's one in the village. Um, it's on the market now. It's the, I think it might be one of the oldest townhouses in the city and it's an individual landmark and they're asking an extremely high price for it. So far, no one has appreciated its historical significance at that level, but there's always- Is it one of your listings? No. Oh, okay. I, I would not take it at that price personally, but- you know, Is it a smaller house? Um, yeah, it's not huge. I mean, most of the houses in Greenwich Village and the West Village are- um, pre-Civil War, and so they uh, tend to be smaller, more of a federal-style home. Yeah. But then you get up to, the, like, the Upper East Side, <clears throat> you start to have mansions, and 20, right, and the, 25... Ex exactly. In the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, you have um, your newer houses, which are 1880s, 1890s, um, with the more modern technology, so they're bigger. Um, so bigger with the four floors there. too, right? <clears throat> Typically, instead yeah, of usually four five floors, floors, five floors. Is, instead of five, exactly. So the the clapboard house that's in the village that I'm aware of, at least, is is pretty small, and it's a very interesting property. Um, it's just you know kind of small and overpriced. And then when you get as far as Brooklyn, they even get smaller, right, Terry? Not necessarily. We don't have as many of the mansions. Right. We do our fair share, but we don't have as many of the mansions. And um, I don't think that the housing, I don't think houses are necessarily smaller. You don't think? No, I think they're not. I think they're not at all. Uh, there's some really huge houses in Brooklyn yeah. that are beautiful. But like on yep. some of those row street, let's say in Park Slope, some of those long rows, those houses are typically what width? 20. They're 20? Yeah, I mean, we have some that are narrower and some that are sure. wider. By like one is fantastic, but generally you want the house to be 20. And how deep and are the lots? Like on the Upper West Side, it's very common to be, for example, 18 or 20 wide and like 100 feet deep. The we lot. have yeah. a lot, yeah, we have a lot of 100 feet. But if you're somewhere, for example, you're talking about Park Slope, in the North Slope, uh, sometimes it might be like 80 to 90 feet deep, but we even have some that are 133. So there's no like, that's that's the big difference. And, and I'm sure David will agree with me. That's the big difference with townhouses. People are like, oh, how much can you get a townhouse for this 20 wide? Or how much could you get a townhouse for in this neighborhood? How much, there's no such thing because they're oranges. Every single one is different. Yeah. What was it built? What kind of architecture was it? 
Um, what condition is it in? When was it redone? Is it a single family? Is it a two family? Like, where is it located? Is it on a homogenous block, right? So all of that stuff comes into play. Um, and I think it, it's the same in Manhattan and Brooklyn in terms of the stock. Um, there are a few more mansions, I would say, probably in the Upper East Side and Upper West Side uh, than in Brooklyn, but we have our fair share. So I'm gonna share the screen now and I'm gonna show the six uh, listings that they, the six townhouses that David has listed right now. And I wanna, I wanna call attention to the $31 million, $31.5 million townhouse on the Upper East Side, because that, that, you know, that, that caught my attention. Um, that is beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit about what makes this a $31 million townhouse? I mean, it's, it's architecturally stunning. And I guess part of its uh, attraction is that it's on the Upper East Side. Um, but other than that, what can you tell us about a $31 million townhouse? Sure. Um, there's a couple interesting factors. As you can see from that photo, it's uh, really a gorgeous limestone facade, which when you get to higher pricing echelons, that's really what buyers want. That house is also 25 feet wide, which is, you know, really great. Um, wider is always better and for these houses, assuming there's a certain baseline of depth as well. Um, and, you know, it's number seven East 88th. So you're really, the numbers increase as you get farther away from Fifth Avenue and Central Park. You can see from that photo how close you are to Central Park. You're literally a few houses down. The Guggenheim is right around the corner. Um, so the location is fantastic. Um, and in terms of architecture, this is a bow art style townhouse, which at the time they were constructed were the most luxurious and uh, valuable types of homes. Now, you know, no one cares because no matter what you do, they knock it down and in the inside and build it out again. But there is a distinctly uh, unique and beautiful type of architecture that was uh, is here now. Um, so, you know, it, I, I think it's a very interesting property and there's no real big negatives. Um, it does need some work, but uh, to can me, you, that's what makes it really special. Can I ask you about something? <clears throat> this is a four family house, right? It's currently four units, yes. Four units. Most people, the, the highest and best use in this location, which may be your question, I don't know, is a single family. So this is likely gonna go to someone who wants to create that use. Single family is just a general term. It's not family specific. It means one unit. So someone will make the entire 10,000 square foot property one uh, home. So what, just out of curiosity, this is, we're gonna get into this in a little bit, is that this is a multiple unit house. It's over three units. What are the taxes on this house per year? Well, you know, if you have to ask, then you probably shouldn't be looking at it. But um, I don't remember what the taxes are off the top of my head. I have to double check. But, uh, you know, taxes in this location can be anywhere from 100 to as high as 300000 per year. Right. Um, and, you know, I still think compared to other locations uh, like New Jersey or Connecticut or other places around America, relative to the prices of these homes, 
the taxes in New York City are actually not bad. Like I think if you had a $30 million house in Connecticut, for example, it would be massive and the land would be huge and the taxes would be a lot higher. But I, I'm talking a little bit about my pay grade because I don't know that market particularly well. John, how, what are the taxes on a house that's $30 million in Connecticut and Westchester? There are no $30 million houses in New Canaan. So for $30 million, I probably have to go over to Greenwich and defer to my friend, Scott Hobbs, who builds $30 million houses just like every other week in Greenwich. Scott, what, what are the uh, taxes on, on the, the, the houses you build? You have to ask. No, it's, um, I, I believe Greenwich is around like 1% of assessed value, which is like 70%. So a $30 million house would probably be assessed at like 21 million. So you're probably about 210, something like that, 220, that neighborhood. Competitive with New York City. Yeah. So David, so David, I had a buyer who had a four unit house and he rented the top three units. He took the top two he, and he wanted to reduce his tax class in order to reduce his taxes. So he, he combined the two top units and then he had a duplex at the top. So he had his unit, a middle unit and a top unit, which was a duplex, actually a triplex. So then he had three units and he went to a tertiary attorney and his taxes literally dropped because of the tax, because of the tax class changed. Now, recently I spoke to, I had a buyer who was looking at a house and it was a multiple unit house that could be delivered vacant. I think it was seven or eight units and they were considering renovating it and making it a single family home. And the taxes were something like 80 or 90 some thousand. And I spoke to a tertiary attorney who said, in theory, yes, that after it's converted to a single family and you change the CFO that your taxes could actually be reduced, but there's no guarantee. Do you, have you experienced that? Are you yeah. talking Oh, I'm talking sorry. to both of you. Go ahead, Terry. That's a fun question to answer. So you have it. <laughs> so it's actually gone both ways. Part of it is they're looking at value. And if you take a seven family, so a single family is worth more than a two family, which is worth more than a three family, and it keeps going. So if you have a seven family, yes, you're paying commercial taxes, but because it's more than a three family, but you're making this new single family, which is gonna be worth a lot more. And so you're probably gonna pay higher taxes. It's not just about the tax rate, it's about the value. And I think every time you go and make some kind of alteration like this and you're changing uh, the number of units, then I, I feel like that kind of um, automatically makes the city reassess and therefore you're more likely to be hit with a higher tax. What do you right. think? I mean, I've seen it. Um, <clears throat> so the lowest tax class is uh, class 1A and that means townhouses that are one, two or three units or we might say three family. Um, if a building is a class 1A and has been a 1A for a long time, no matter what the condition is, the CFO hasn't changed, even if it's changed hands for, um, even if it's changed hands from a value standpoint, uh, so there's been a sale price at a higher level, 
usually, well, not usually, but there, there's a cap on the amount of increases that you're allowed to have from the city for that tax class. Homes that are other tax classes do not have those types of caps. So really, uh, in my opinion, I mean, the taxes are all over the place and you never know what you're going to get, except they usually go up. But uh, the taxes on a house are determined by its uh, history. So like I said, if it was a single family for the past 50 or 60 years, then usually you're going to have much lower taxes than if, for example, the Upper West Side as a neighborhood has gone through a lot of transitions where, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, it was not a super luxury neighborhood. It was, you know, much less valuable than it is today. And so people were taking homes up there and getting special actually tax breaks from the city, like it's called a J51 tax break in order to um, turn those homes into multifamilies. And they were taking out the stoops, which are the front steps to make an extra apartment upstairs and things like that, just to maximize it as a small rental building. Then in the past one, the Upper West Side, for as an example, has been become a much more luxurious neighborhood. Uh, you know, we had an apartment uh, sell at 15 Central Park West for $88 million or 13,000 a foot, which is still the highest price per foot in New York City for a property. Uh, I just sold an apartment in that building, you know, a few months ago for $47 million for 6,000 square feet. So, you know, the Upper West Side's come a long way, but uh, in terms of how it affects your taxes, um, now that these multifamilies are all being converted back to single families and they're trading for 15 to $20 million, um, the rates are increasing, but as Terry said, you're changing the tax class to a lower class, so you don't actually get uh, as, there's a limitation on future increases. So the, the real thing you wanna look at is what's your basis today? What's the history? And as Roberto said, when you talk to these lawyers who try and you know negotiate your taxes, and I hate saying the word tertiary because I always screw it up. I don't know how to say it right. But um, basically, by the time you pay those lawyers, it's not usually worth whatever reduction you end up getting. But what I always tell my clients who own townhouses is hire these lawyers while you own it and manage your taxes, pay attention to your taxes, because the city screws it up all the time and they assess uh, at different rates all the time, which may or may not be anywhere close to value. Um, so it takes active management to keep your taxes low or at least where they should be that's great all right so some of the questions one of the key questions is how do you price something at 31 million dollars what goes into the pricing one of the things i've heard is well is it brownstone is it limestone i've also heard you talk about upper west side upper east side different locations um i've heard you talk about whether it's a uh, single family or multifamily, but ultimately those are only tools that get us into the, into, into the, I, I, into, into, they get us close. How do you price something for 31 and a half million dollars? Are there enough comps out there to give you confidence when you price at that level? Well, um, it's all relative, I think. And what I mean by that is, you know, on the Upper East Side, for example, houses there, the most recent top sales have 
in about 72 to 77 million dollars. Brown Harris Stevens did a 77 million dollar sale uh, a year and a half ago or two years ago, I guess, something like that. Um, and that's the highest price paid for a townhouse in the city. And you know, 80 million is sort of the new 50 million for the Upper East Side. And so to actually have a $30 million house, as crazy as it might seem, is really sort of the upper middle class of the Upper East Side, ironically, as crazy it is. I'm from Maryland. I didn't grow up with money. So to say stuff like this sometimes blows my mind, but that's what it is. Um, so, you know, as Terry will say, I think as well, it's, you, you do your research, you try to figure out the data and get it as accurate as you can. But at the end of the day, um, you, you look at the comps, uh, you try to assess it based on your experience. You look at the price per foot, the level of finish, the location, the size, all this stuff. And then you just do whatever the owner says, which is usually overprice it. So that, that's usually how it goes, my experience. <laughs> How often does that aspirational, you know, you, they know when you can justify and you can feel and you can data, you can, you do all your analysis and you're like, it's worth 25. And they say, I want to price it at 39. How often do you aspirationally grab somebody who just is at the right moment, who comes and you know what, you end up at a deal at 34 and you're like, they're paying way too much. Tara, you want to get that one? So the question is, how often do you actually get that aspirational price for your client? Is that, is that correct? Just on, on something like that, where it's, you know, it's actually difficult to price in some ways because you don't have a lot, you don't have a big data set. And it really is, you know, it could sell for 26, it could sell for 36. And it depends who's there and who's coming at that moment. And if, you know, they've lost on two or three other things, then like, I'm not losing this one. Or, yeah, you know. Well, so I think a lot of it has to do with the people who are in this realm where they have so much money that does 20 or $30 million make a difference? I don't know if that's the house that you want. Does it really make a difference? Do, do they care even if they overpay for it? Probably not. What um, you're saying is so it's townhouses, at townhouses as a category is an inefficient market that you can have, you, you expect big swings because it's not efficient. There's a lot of emotion driving mm -hmm. the townhouse market. And you Absolutely. come into, and you expect it. Absolutely, but I think emotion um, in, in any real estate market when it's your residence, right? So I think if this is your home, and you want to be, some people want to be just on this block or this street or, you know, a certain area and a home comes available. And if they have the money to pay for it, they'll pay for it. So yes, sometimes you have people overpaying, but they really don't care. The people who are overpaying really don't care about that. So they, at those price ranges, it's worth giving it a shot. The price range oh, I definitely. Yeah, I think sorry, it's go definitely ahead start the conversation somewhere right David you have to start the conversation somewhere yeah and I mean this price range is not a crazy price range for a townhouse of this size and location on the Upper East Side you know like again I hate saying it but sorry for the siren um, but you know 
that's thirty million dollars in the Upper East Side for a townhouse is, like I said, it's not really close to the top of the market. I and mean, yet you said you wouldn't take that one downtown because it was overpriced. And that's what's interesting to me is you wouldn't take an overpriced listing in a townhouse market, and yet many townhouses are expected to be come to market overpriced just because they're townhouses. And it's inefficient um, and difficult to price. Yeah, I don't, I don't really agree with that statement. Um, I think it's, it's it's all contextual, right? And so, like, you can't say, oh, well, this apartment sold for 6,000 a foot, so this townhouse should sell for 6,000 a foot. Um, yes, I did mention at the beginning that houses usually sell for a lower price per foot, but there are houses, you know, I think the question we're sort of getting into, which is maybe more applicable to any general market, is, um, you know, how do you set a record that's never been set before? How do you push it to a new level? Like, I went to a townhouse in the village, not very, very close to that clapboard house, which is 25 feet wide, and there's four stories. It was about 4,800 square feet, and it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. And I walked in, and I said to the owner, what do you think this house is worth? And he actually said to me, well, you know, I'd love if we could get 16 million for it. You know, it's a little over, I don't know, 3,500 a foot or something in that neighborhood. And I said, I think we should price it at 30 million. And I thought, you know, his eyes popped out of his head and he's like, well, nothing's ever sold for that price before. You know, why do you think that? And I said, well, it's a beautiful house. You're on a great block. And it's just a special property. Anyway, I ended up selling it for 25 million and it was in the newspaper so I can say to Rupert Murdoch who can do whatever he wants. And uh, he paid almost $5,000 a foot which was uh, the second highest price per foot ever paid in the city for a property or a townhouse. And so exactly what Terry was saying, if a rich guy wants it, there's nothing that's gonna stop him from getting it. Um, How quickly but, did that transpire? Uh, incredibly fast. He walked in to the property. He spent about 10 minutes and he said, my, you know, so-and-so will call you in the morning. And, um, but how long was it listed? Uh, we had it on for about eight months or so. And we had a few offers that were lower. But I told the owners, let's keep waiting. And then we had an offer on the table at 23 and a quarter that the owners were going to take. Um, but yeah, then Rupert Murdoch walked in and said, uh, you know, my associate will call you in the morning. Offered 25 million. Sent me a contract and he closed in, I don't know, two, three weeks, all cash. I love it. I love a story when an agent is $25 million right. I love to hear that. So can we talk about how the market has changed in the early at 2010, 11, 12, 13, the townhouse market was, was building and building and building. And it kind of peaked at 2015. And I think it's because there was so much, you know, there was so much new construction with con you could never find. And one of the reasons why townhouses were so popular is you couldn't find that size. 
you couldn't get 4,000, 5,000 square feet in an apartment. So you had to look at a townhouse. But then finally developers started to become smart and they started to develop quote unquote family sized apartments, large spaces. And then these spaces also, they had doormen, they had amenities, they had pools, they had everything. So that that started to take away some of the buyers. But as everything started to, as the, so that took away the demand for townhouses, correct or no? So. Uh, go ahead, Terry, sorry. Okay, that's okay. So I, I think what happened is, I mean, a townhouse buyer is not just a buyer because of space. Um, I think, again, David is, works in a realm that he needs to talk about that realm, but um, a townhouse buyer wants to have independence. A townhouse buyer wants to have the townhouse. It's not just the space. So I do think that, yes, there, there was more competition when the developers built these, as you said, family-sized apartments, but also someone who's buying that was probably not a townhouse buyer but they want their packages. Maybe they have a second home or a third home and they want to be able to lock the door and leave and not worry about anything. They don't want to take out their own trash and they don't want to um, have to deal with being like right on the street. You open your door and you're right on the street. Of course, David will probably talk about people with butlers and, and housekeepers who, who create that barrier. But um, Does Rupert Murdoch have to take out his own trash? Wait a minute. <laughs> what? What? Probably David, not. David still goes over there and does that for him. Exactly. exactly. During COVID, he did. I'm loving the image of Rupert Murdoch. Oh, yeah, I hate this. I take out my own trash. I'm right up on the street. Yeah, this isn't working out for me. He, 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 never, he never, just to give you a sense of how that works, I don't think he ever went into the house after he bought it. And then he waited a few years and resold it for like a little bit like 27 million or something um so you know I, I don't think he ever went in the door once he realized he had to take out his own trash then of course <laughs> of course he sold it got his own trash obviously that's a different that's a different yeah. thing. but i think that um you know as you said 2015 16 17 18 19 basically people preferred to spend more money per square foot, spend more money and pay more in monthlies, but buy these fabulous large apartments because they had things that came with them. The location was, they had a doorman, received their packages, they had amenities. There was so much going for them that the townhouse, I don't wanna say fell to the wayside because yes, there's still some people who are very private and would still be in a townhouse and would never buy one of those apartments. but what happened and and david you can tell me what you think is what happened to the townhouse market is it came back with a vengeance after COVID. sure because people don't want neighbors they don't, they want, don't want they don't no, want well, elevators deal with the germs right we're already in new york we're already on top of each other but that's something that if you could control like who you're interacting with on a daily basis as you come into your home then you're going to do it. And a lot of people, I think, ended up buying townhouses. Um, a number of people who were Manhattanites and never thought they were going to move to Brooklyn ended up moving to Brooklyn and buying townhouses. And actually, a lot of money came from Manhattan to Brooklyn because the townhouses also, I have to say, they're very beautiful. And the town, 
I don't want to say that I'm sitting in a beautiful townhouse right now, but not all of them are like this. A lot of them are tiny and beat up and chopped up and they're just not that great. So I feel like it was an easy choice for people to say, okay, I'm going to stay in New York. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to um, Long Island. I'm not going to Westchester. I'm going to stay, but I'm going to move to Brooklyn and buy myself a really nice townhouse. And you know where and all the people who sold in Brooklyn went? They to all, you. They, they all came to Fairfield County because they were <laughs> like, you know what? I'm already used to taking out my own trash, right? I already like having my own building, my own little building, you know, instead of being in an apartment. And we're the closest thing to it. So once you've made the transition from Manhattan to Brooklyn, the obvious next transition is to come out here to New Canaan and uh or greenwich uh or westport and uh try and uh get yourself a little bit more green space but so on. then where do your so then where do your sellers go once they leave connecticut <laughs> well you must have missed the palm beach episode because <laughs> i did not i did not miss it unfortunately i wish i did <laughs> yeah they uh they they been good. Uh, uh, there are uh, we have more than our fair share of hedge fund managers in Darien, New Canaan, and Greenwich, and a lot of them, unfortunately, did go to Florida, and not just because it was a real estate decision, but sometimes because it was a tax decision. So, I think a big thing also to talk about about townhouses is that it typically when a townhouse comes on the market, at least for the most part, you've had an entire generation that's lived in the house. So every time you see a house that comes to market, you have a, someone has to buy a house for eight, six, seven, eight, whatever million, and they got to put two, three, four, five million dollars into it in order to make it what they want it to be in a brand new house for their generation of, uh, for their family. So you have to have someone who has the wherewithal to carry that house for probably 24 months while they're living somewhere else as well. Now on the Upper West Side, I would say, you know, that type of, you know, proposition is anywhere from you know, to completely renovate the house and buy a house is somewhere between probably eight to 12 to 13, 14, 15. On the Upper East Side near the park, that's probably what, 18, 19, $20,000 proposition, David? To buy a gut job on the Upper East Side? To, to, get, in, to get into a house, like, on, for example, like Park Block or from, from Fifth to, to Park Avenue, somewhere in that range, you're gonna be to 15 to 20 in order to get that, right? Generally, I mean, there's a very couple of very small houses now. Small, um, small, <laughs> like uh, I don't even know the square footage, but pretty darn small because they're park blocks off of Fifth Avenue on the Upper East Side. They need complete renovations, and one's asking like eight million, the other one's asking around seven million, and they're quite narrow, four stories, um, and. Uh, you know, but again, the <clears throat> you could easily go to a much larger house on the Upper East Side, like, for example, um, the Jeffrey Epstein Mansion, which was an incredible piece of real estate. It was 20,000 square feet in a great location, but had this horrible taint on it from the history of the property. That still sold to some guy who was in the newspaper, I forget, a hedge fund guy or a finance guy for like, you know, $55 million. And I'm sure he's going to gut it completely. Um, and just to give you a sense of the construct 
subscription costs you're talking about at the super high end uh, for that level of property, people are paying 1500 to 2000 plus per foot and that's 20,000 square feet. So he's probably going to be in for, I don't know, 90. Those numbers sounded good to you, Scott. It, it really, I mean, it, I, I was actually going to ask following up on your question that of course people only come to us on townhouses they want to renovate. And I was wondering out of, for the townhouses, is it like 80% of them need a lot of renovation? Do some just need a little bit of lipstick? Do they all need a lot of renovation? Because you're right about it. Some of these houses don't change for generations. And typically at the end of the time, people haven't modernized for a long time before that. The ones that come that are completely renovated and move in sell at a tremendous premium because you can literally just walk in. Like David had a house, I think it was 31 West 89th Street a couple of years ago. That was a spectacular house. Sold for like 13 million or something, right? Yeah, 13.3. That was a gorgeous house, but that house, let's just say that house hadn't been renovated. Like when that owner bought it, they probably bought it at like six or something and probably put th 3 million into it. They were probably into it more, for nine. More than that. Yeah, more than that. Um, I don't think they made a ton of money on it uh, at the end of the day, but you know, it just depends on what you buy it for and what you spend. I mean, renovations here now, they used to top out probably 600 to 800 a foot now they sort of bottom out around 500 600 a foot for a high-end renovation okay so let me go back to my question you took it to Jeff jeffrey epstein's house which is just the extraordinary you have a buyer if i have a buyer on the upper west side and they say you know i want to look for a house to put my family in i want it to be renovated i'm going to tell them that you need a budget probably of like 7 to 11 12 whatever and you can find something right does that sound fair Sorry, I, I don't, I didn't quite catch the question. If you, if you, if I have a buyer, like, listen, I, I want to buy a house on the Upper West Side and I want it to be renovated. I don't want to do a lot of work. They're going to need a budget of somewhere between probably seven and a half, eight to somewhere around 12, 13 ish, right? Generally, right? That'll, you could get a nice um, house. <clears throat> not, house. On, not, on, not on a park block, but yeah, off the park block. Yeah. Not on a park block? Correct. On the Upper West Side? Correct. But you, what do you, what are you saying the budget needs to be? For park block? Yeah. For, for renovated done. single, yeah, yeah. Renovated single family, Upper West Side, you're talking, I mean, the cheapest one I've seen in the past few years was one on 76th Street, which is a great block, 20 footer. Uh, didn't have an elevator. It was sort of a two family. They use it as a one family, but it was really a beautiful house and it sold for like 13 one. And I thought it was a steal. Typically, you're bottoming out around 14 to 15 in a good market. And these are 20-foot wide houses. There hasn't been a big 25-foot wide sale on the park block in a while. Um, no one's broken the 20. I would differ with you because I think you can definitely find something. <clears throat> but on the up, I would say- those A renovated single family on the park block for $12 million? Yeah. Tell me where it is. I'm, I, Show I, me. I'll, I would love to. I have buyers I'll, right I'll now I'll send you waiting. some stuff. I could find it probably now. Because I have buyers looking and they need, and there's things that are 10, 11, 12, but they don't want to spend 10, 11, 12. They want to spend eight, you know? So, but, so I wanted, I just wanted to make a comparison. So the Upper East Side, that scale jumps really 16 to 25. And then what I wanted to get to was Terry, 
like in Brooklyn, what do you need? What sort of budget do you need to buy? You know, I want to have a townhouse in Brooklyn. Is it because it's like three, four, I mean, it's like four or five million, six million, right? It depends on where in sure. Brooklyn. Sure. So, and, and I work in what we call prime yeah. Brooklyn. Um, so for there, yes, except where it depends on exactly where in the condition. But if you're looking for completely renovated um, and on a nice block, you know, nicely renovated, newly renovated, you're definitely looking for more than that. You're looking for, I mean, minimum six-ish, minimum. So, so if I'm so, your buyer and I'm saying, I'm looking for, Terry, I'm looking for a renovated house. I'm so glad I met you. Uh, you know, what, what is it gonna take for me to get a really nice house? I got, you know, four kids and, you know, I want it to be, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do any work. I need to be around six as a floor. Ish. Yeah. Because, I get it. I get it. Because, and, and that's what I want. I, I think with David, what he's talking about, there's renovated and there's renovated, right? And exactly. a lot of people think that they've renovated the place and it's, I renovated, but you renovated it eight years ago. You renovated it years ago and it wasn't done done right so so what david's talking about is probably something going down to the studs or or like everything being rebuilt right and high quality you can pay just like you know you could pay what sixty thousand dollars or or you could pay five hundred thousand dollars for a kitchen is the place you're in now renovated because I'm looking at the ceiling and I'm saying, oh, somebody's already gone to the trouble of wiring that townhouse, you know, with, uh, you know, with, with modern, with modern electricity. But you're saying that was, that could have been an older rest, uh, an older restoration. A hundred percent. hundred percent. This house is a very old house. Um, it's from the 1840s. It has history. So, so like a buyer who cares about that history and, cares about the detail of this house would love that and they wouldn't touch that but they would go behind the walls and of course fix everything in the basement redo everything all the plumbing and all the electrical and everything else that goes with it and of course the fixtures but but really the detail of the house is what makes this house so special I think um, so what what I think David and Roberto are talking about it's it's like a little bit um, it's a slightly different level of finish, different quality, you know, and, and um, like David said, he's from Maryland. I'm from Maryland as well. I'm from Maryland too. You are? Yeah. Great, great I, people from Maryland. Potomac. I'm from, Chevy I'm from Hagerstown, Maryland. I'm from the Redneck Riviera. Okay. Chevy, Chevy Chase, but when I, my parents moved there in 1976, it wasn't very fancy. Now it's very fancy, but you know. It's very fancy. It's very yeah. So um, anyway, so again, like I could live in a number of these places where I, I sell or I have my clients come in and look and they'll redo everything. Yeah. But I don't need that. So it all depends on the level. And some people are willing to pay. And, and David, you've done this and seen it. People are willing to pay top dollar and will only buy a place that's completely renovated. And then they gut it. They buy it. 
done and then they gut it. And, yep. and, and something that somebody did, um, like a, an owner did for themselves is very different than what we call a developer job. Right. So, and I'm, I'm sorry to, um, Scott, <laughs> but there is, so he's a custom guy. <laughs> I'm right there. I'm right there with you. You're hundred percent. Right. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So it, it all depends on what you're talking about and it's not, you know, the finishes are so important. The architecture is so important. The layout is so important. Every bit of it is important. And to restore a house is actually, it costs more than to get rid of everything and build new, right? So um, those things all come into play. There's no like, oh, okay, you can buy a place for this much money. It depends on who you're talking to. Is this person, um, is this buyer, really interested in not having to do anything. So it's new electrical and new plumbing and it's, you know, it's a new kitchen, new bathrooms, everything looks new, but it's not quality. Or do you, or do you need someone who's going to walk into a place and feel like this is fantastic. It's kind of like the, the coach Prada thing, right? Do you want a coach bag or do you want a Prada bag? They could both be leather. They could both be the same color. They could both fit the same amount of things, but they're going to be a very different price, different style. They're different. It's the same thing with townhouses. They're not, there's not one size fits all. So I think Roberto, your, your clients can definitely find a house. It's not going to be the same kind of house that um, David's talking about. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> Where's the, where's the deal in the market? Some people are feeling like they've already missed out. But if I'm, uh, if I got 25 million or $50 million burning a hole in my pocket um, and I feel like, you know what, it's already been picked over all this stuff, you know, um, there are no deals to be had in Brooklyn. There's no deals to be had. There's no deals to be had in the new development, you know, penthouse. I mean, are they wrong? Can, can you tell me, is there a neighborhood that I could be looking at? where I could actually get a good buy and renovate it and, and be happy uh, with my resale value in the end? Or is You're it, yeah, is the, is the townhouse market overheated? Is it still, a, or is it still a good investment? I think it's always a good investment as uh, my friend, Frank Aarons at Elliman, he used to say, uh, you have your hand in the dirt with a townhouse as opposed to most of us who live in apartments, we're, you know, we have a piece of sky, we're somewhere in there, but we don't own the land that we're on and you can't make more land. So I think a townhouse is actually a fantastic investment um, in terms of where in the market, it's not a neighborhood, but I would say uh, the area of the market right now that's the softest are townhouses in need of work because everyone hasn't been living really um, the way they would have liked to during the pandemic. And uh, they want their lives to start. They don't wanna go buy a townhouse and then do a renovation for three years and then move into, like what's gonna happen in three years? Who knows three years seems so far away and they wanna live now, they wanna enjoy it now. So you see bidding wars for done houses and you don't, like you see all of these houses that are sitting there that are not done there, you know, somebody's going to have to buy it and fix it up or somebody's going to have to buy it. It's a three family. They have to make it into a single family. They had, like, there's a lot of work. That's where I think um, 
that I guess any kind of bargain would be right now. David? Yeah, and I, I, <clears throat> I don't know the exact right way to say this, but Terry is, is so on point with that. And so like, she's so correct. And I've seen it myself and other brokers have been complaining about it and like, so, so right on. Um, how does it need work? If you're willing to do the work, great. The problem is there's a labor shortage, there's material shortage. And during, I, she said it in a much better way than I've said it and changed how I think about it a little bit, but she's exactly right. We both sort of have the same conclusion in that I say, you know, in times of, you know, trauma, like this is a very traumatic time, generally speaking, is still in the city. We're not fully past <clears throat> the uh, COVID. So I think people tend to see the future more pessimistically than they do when it's a boom market and everything's great. Um, and so if you see the future more negatively, then you're not going to want to bear more risk. You're not going to want to say, oh, yeah, let's go and buy this house and it'll be great in three years because that's just not how you see the future. You're like exactly what Terry said. I want it now. I don't want to do anything. And especially when you're talking at these bigger numbers, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million, you know, these people can do whatever they want. They don't have to be in New York. They could be in Aspen. They could be in the South of France. They could be in Australia. Wherever they want to go, they can go. Wherever they want to live, they can live. Uh, whatever they want to have, they can have. And they want it now. Because like she said, who knows what next year is going to bring? I sure as hell don't know. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, in terms of, yeah, you can get a deal on an unrenovated house, but then you got to renovate it theoretically or carry it at least. Um, so, yeah, I, I think someone who's willing to find the right thing and go through the work will probably knock on wood be re rewarded, assuming things continue in a similar positive direction as they have the past year. Um, and then it's just what exactly are you buying in terms of location, size, et cetera, um, compared to, you know, other sales in the past. Scott Hobbs, I just bought a great, I just got a great deal from Terry and David on a, uh, a townhouse that needs work. Can, uh, can you put it, can you make it awesome in 18 months or is that just not going to happen now? The, the work itself, yes. The approval process, you know, from approval, beginning design approval all the way through to the end, that's, that's really one of the hardest parts. And then the other question always with the renovation is once we actually do the demolition, what do you discover? And unfortunately, especially in some of the older houses that have not been renovated recently, uh, you can discover some things that are, are real head scratchers and can delay a project um, substantively. But I'm, I'm Rupert Murdoch and money is no object and I want to live in it in 18 months. You're telling me that even Mer Rupert can't always get what he wants? Well, remember New York City, they, they, especially if it's a landmarks building, no, he can't. Um, but in New York City, it's, it's just the, the wheels of uh, approvals and the government and Con Ed all move slowly. Once the approvals are given, though, there's a lot of stuff that can happen very quickly. And a nice thing with the townhouse is you can actually work a lot more hours. I mean, a problem inside of a, an apartment building is, you know, you show up at eight and you're at the elevator at eight and you're not up to the apartment until nine or 10. And then you got to start getting out at two. And so you, and you can't work on the weekends or any holidays. 
Whereas on a townhouse, you can actually, you know, seven o'clock till seven o'clock and you can work the weekends. And as long as you're not disturbing the neighbors, a lot more can happen. So townhouses do have an advantage that they can move quicker. And furthermore, everything Scott said is exactly right. On top of that, uh, in a co-op or a condo, you need to get the approval of the building. And maybe your dog got in a fight with your neighbor's dog and now your neighbor is not who sits on the board is not going to approve that new nightclub room that you were going to build off of her bedroom uh, or whatever. So it's like tons of approvals. And I, I have clients who have renovated houses and taken five years to get their CFO, not because they did anything wrong. It's just stuff happens. Yeah. Scott, you're building, you said in 18 months, you could do that, but is that a, a longer time frame than you would have given us had we asked you two years ago? Uh, yes. I mean, right now, there's no question. I mean, every, everyone, you read about and see it all the time that the, the supply chain is broken and there's weird stuff. There's just weird stuff that's missing. I mean, cabinet slides for drawers are on ration to the cabinet manufacturers. So you, we're actually getting cabinets with the drawers, but you can't install the drawers because there's no slides to them. I mean, they're just weird stuff, uh, spray in insulation. I mean, all these sort of things are weird. And then getting the labor again, because guys are exhausted and, and everyone's tired and the bureaucracies have figured out how to do some things a little bit faster and other things, they've just gummed up the works and slowed them down. So it, it's, a, it's a challenging environment to get the work done. How much more expensive would you say it is to do a renovation now than it would have been two years ago? Like if someone is spending... Someone had to spend $2 million to renovate X two years ago. What would you say that is now? I mean, it's, obviously it's a, prog a projection. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, if I had to do my gut, I'd probably say maybe 10%. Um, and, and just actually, if you, if you were to look at copper though, you know, copper actually spiked, it crashed, and now it's spiking again. And so it's literally minute by minute, you know, guys will guarantee prices for 24 hours. And sometimes the price is actually lower. A lot of the time it's not. And so it's, it's a very dicey circumstance. We just encourage everyone to plan early, order early, get everything on the line as fast as possible. And in townhomes in particular, um, the sooner you can start doing some demo and knowing what you're really dealing with, the better it is for planning and moving everything forward. Is the quantity of work you're seeing in Manhattan spiking? It's definitely up. I mean, it is, Manhattan was the, the last to recover, just as it was sort of in the real estate market. And we're definitely, you know, with property transfers, work follows. And we've seen a whole lot more property transfers and a lot of our architects are back being very busy. Um, and what's actually ironic is that's slowing things down because a lot of them started doing some work in Florida and out in the suburbs. And now they're finally getting back to the New York City work, but they got to finish the other work too. So even the design process has slowed down a little. Wow. We're definitely New York City, just as, you know, as you guys saw last fall, you know, sure as uh, the moon follows the sun and vice versa, you know, the transactions happen and then the construction follows. We're running out of time and I want to get away from townhouses and get to the two great townhouse whisperers that we have. And I want to know, I want to know before we, we lose you entirely, what's your secret? I mean, clearly you guys are known in New York to be, you know, townhouse superstars. And a lot of agents on this call, you know, are leaning in right now saying, you know, what makes you, what makes you special? 
Um, I mean, obviously your knowledge is long and deep, but it's got to be more to it than just being knowledgeable about townhouses. What's your secret weapon? David, you go first. <laughs> um, okay. You know, it's funny. Uh, I think the in the 18 years that I've been doing this, the best advice I got was actually from my dad when I first started. I didn't know that at the time, of course, but in retrospect, and he said, <clears throat> and my dad grew up in, you know, the Midwest and Missouri. And so he says things in a particular way. Um, but he said to me, you know, David, it seems like there's a lot of cowboys in your business. And if you just kind of act like a normal person, that'll probably get you pretty far. And honestly, I think that was the best advice I ever got where, you know, there are, uh, not to disparage anyone else in particular, but, you know, it's an industry that historically, I think we may be taken over lawyers as one of the more, uh, or I should say, I don't say detestable, but the less least liked industries. Um, everyone has a bad real estate broker story and, you know, overcoming that, especially if you're the second or third or fourth broker on a listing where someone's been burned or had a bad experience. Um, I mean, I've had bad experiences myself using brokers myself uh, when I first moved here. And so I, I think just really, and this may seem like, you know, obvious advice, but treating people the way you want to be treated, being as honest as you possibly can, being not crazy, don't get upset, put the client first, protect them, take care of them, be knowledgeable about whatever you're working on. And, you know, all of those basic things, uh, for better or for worse, distinguish you. And I'm not so sure that it's great that they should, but I think if, you know, my my natural gift that I've just had my whole life is I read people really, really well without trying. Um, but aside from that, I just try to work hard, be smart, tell the truth and do my best and, you know, ex not be greedy and put the client first because you're not going to win every time. Um, but that's okay. You know, you win when you can win. And, uh, in terms of very practical advice, <clears throat> if you're starting out or early on, you know, it takes months, if not years, to do the first few deals and years to build a business that grows upon itself. And so you have to have a lot of savings, you know, and don't spend your money as soon as you earn a big commission, you know, keep two years of savings in cash in the bank. And then, you know, buy some crypto or whatever else you want to do, but uh, be careful with your money. Um, so that's my two cents anyway. Terry, that was great. Love your dad's advice. Terry? That is great. Can you guys see me? Because I can't see myself. We you see. Can? You. Oh, good. <laughs> good. So um, 
I, I agree with David. And I think for me, um, you know, a lot of, um, I find that in our business, uh, there are many people who, I don't know, they think they're movie stars or they think they're very important and it's all about them while we're brokers. It's not about me. It's about you. I'm here to serve you. Um, I try to disappear in the background. I listen very intently. Um, I've never pushed my clients. I've always been honest with them. I've always treated uh, every transaction as if it was mine. Um, and I've given people, I tell them the truth basically. And I tell them, I wouldn't buy this. I mean, I've had people buy places. Um, I've had my clients buy places and I've told them, listen, this is not a good investment. This is not going to be a good resale. Don't buy this place. These are the issues. Oh, you're buying this new development. You're going to have leaks. Just know that you're going to have leaks, you know? So I think just being a normal human being, um, a lot of our colleagues are knowledgeable. A lot of people are very knowledgeable, but they make it about them. Um, and it's honestly, that's, that's the reality. It's not about, it's not about us. Uh, we're just there to make things happen, to, to, to help broker the deal and make sure that our clients are being taken care of. And that's been my priority and everything I do is word of mouth. So I'm grateful to everybody who supported me. That was awesome. Thank you. That was awesome. Uh, really, I mean, we should all aspire to serve our clients and re be reminded it's not about us. And uh, for you know, some of us, it's uh, harder than others. So that's that's really beautiful advice. Thank you. Uh, I hope somebody watches this on the internet and says, "I want to work with him. I want to work with her," because uh, he's not a cowboy, and she and she's here to you know. She's here to serve and uh, give me advice, you know, for me. So I think that was great. Thank you. Roberto, any parting words? I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for joining us, really. I, I, you guys were my first choices and you came. I know, David, you have a wedding to go to and you're on the move. So uh, please tell your girlfriend I apologize. Um, and it's not his wedding, right? No, not his no, wedding. No, I already did that. Okay. Not, not, doing, it, not doing it again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys right. so thanks, much. thanks guys thank you terry terry's the best thank you um, talk to you later you guys bye johnny bye. we'll see you bye guys it was awesome thanks, thanks. Scott. thank you so much